Father, let the text lead us to confess sins. Let us flee from the sins we confess. We lie to ourselves about our sin. Instead of killing it, we cover it up. We pacify it. We pet it. We hide it. We feed it. We need a stern slap in our soul's face. Something to awaken us to the seriousness of our offense. We don't hate our sin. But we want to. We want to despise it. We want it to repulse us. We want to strangle it. But it seems we lack the ability. We lack the strength. We lack the fortitude. Shall we continue in sin? God forbid. May we find the loveliness of Christ far surpasses the lavishness of sin. Father, you didn't bring us out to leave us alone. You've given us your spirit and your word. We open one now and call upon the other. God, show us from this text the effects of our sin and the effectual love of Christ toward us in our sin. We need the gospel. And we need it plainly. We need it powerfully. We need it persistently. Grant us, dear Lord, a gospel glimpse this day. This is our corporate plea. Amen. This text is good for future pastors, for those rushing to get into the ministry. Paul went to Corinth, won a bunch of people to Christ, started a church, fed them, discipled them, prayed with them, preached to them, 18 months pouring into them. Do they celebrate him, love him, send him thank you letters? No, they throw rocks at him. Not literal rocks, verbal rocks. They aren't appreciative of him. Paul speaks from his heart about what it's like to be their pastor. He's brutally honest. Paul reveals to us why they put pastors on a platform. It's so everyone can get better aim. <laughs> Future pastor, if you go through this chapter and run to the ministry instead of away from it, you just might be able to last in it. I want you to go through this hard passage and for it to further confirm you are meant for full-time ministry. My prayer is that God will use this text to make preachers out of some of you men and some of you boys. Before I came here, I trained future pastors in a college and seminary. I'm still doing it, but in a healthier venue. Training pastors within the local church. I hope an army of pastors come from FFC. And you say, but then they would have to leave. Yes. Multiplication by subtraction. This text is good for future pastors. This text is good for current pastors. Paul pastors this church in Corinth for 18 months. The entire time, he never collected a salary. He picked up a job at Bass Pro Shop making tents out of leather. They didn't take care of the financial needs of the one feeding them. They didn't free Paul of other responsibilities so he could focus on prayer and preaching. They questioned his motives. They fought everything he ever did in Corinth. And when he left, 
Many of them said, glad he's gone. He is still dealing with the effects of pastoring them three to five years later. God never said pastoring would be easy and that it wouldn't cost you. It's going to cost you. This text is good for future pastors. This text is good for current pastors. This text is good for those who have pastors. You ever wondered how pastors are paid? It's hitting some of you now. I have, I have no idea. I've never given thought to that. Isn't there a story in the Bible where Jesus found some money in the mouth of a fish? I guess if they want to get paid, maybe they should go fishing. This text is good for those who have pastors. What does the Bible say is your part in providing for the financial needs of your pastors? Did you know the Bible addresses this? Did you know that you are responsible for this? Once you get to the second point in the sermon today, you will not be able to deny your responsibility in this matter. It takes a while for Paul to build to it, but when he does, it's undeniable. There are churches whose pastor's wives are driving Uber, and the pastor works a side job because the church has it in their mind they need to keep their pastor at near poverty since he's in the ministry. Let me explain to you this sermon title, Paying for Your Gospel Meals. Imagine, imagine going to a restaurant and buying a nice juicy steak and a baked potato and a salad. Finishing that tasty meal without paying and then going to another restaurant a few doors down and giving them money. That's what happens all the time. People in churches give money to other ministries and neglect the one who fed them the gospel meal. I'll never forget, Sarah and I had this lady in her 20s over to our house. Her and her husband were new members of our church. She began to tell us how she was growing spiritually. She had never been under preaching like this before and it was so beneficial to her soul. It was like a feast every Sunday. I think she was sitting on our countertops the best I can remember. She said, I've never grown so much as I have under this preaching, but I don't give to FFC. I give to my old church. And she mentioned a church in another state. And I was like, no, you didn't come in my house, <laughs> sit on my countertops. No, I was, I was more mature than that. I completely forgot that happened until writing this sermon late Friday night. We didn't say anything to her, we just smiled. We knew that she would mature beyond that. Just a steady diet of the word and she would mature beyond that. See, I probably should not have told you that because you're now gonna be afraid to come over to my house and be turned into a sermon illustration. <laughs> I was the new pastor at the time and I was just coming in and, and told, we don't have enough money to pay you. We had a lot of that in the early days. We had key families that picked up the slack for others. Parents, your children will keep this church going. When I am gone, when you are gone, and this is a wonderful text for you to sit down with them later this afternoon and teach them why you contribute to your local church and how important it is for them to continue what your family has begun. I see that in our church often. 
I'm not seeing it in a lot of other churches. Parents instructing their kids on the importance of financially supporting their pastors and their families. This text deals with funding your farmers, salary your shepherds, paying for your gospel meals. I had one man in our church tell me a long time ago, before he was even a member of our church, he was in another church but listening to our sermons online and we would talk on the phone during the week. He said, you preach with such boldness no matter the topic except when you talk about finances. When you talk about giving to the local church, you come in a little hesitant. He was right. And it's something I intend not to do today. I intend to speak with boldness on your need to contribute to the place who is feeding you gospel meals. He told me that nearly four years ago. It's completely changed how I speak about this. Giving is crucial for your discipleship. You need to do this to grow in the Lord. You need to exercise this muscle regularly. I hope some of you that are not contributing will start contributing. You will no longer dine and dash. Some of you, you've got food all over your mouth, crumbs on your shirt, walking right out after enjoying a good meal and contributing nothing to God's restaurant that served you the gospel meal. Soul food. Soul food is valuable. And a lot goes into prepping it. This text is good for future pastors. This text is good for current pastors. This text is good for all those who have pastors. And this text is good for those who are suspicious of pastors. You have a right to be suspicious of some pastors. Because there are some wolves behind the pulpit. There are some getting rich off fleecing the sheep. There are even social media accounts now showing preacher swag. Pictures of preachers wearing $10,000 watches, $20,000 suits, $8,000 Jordans. Preachers are setting the trend in fashion. Non-Christians are trying to keep up with the preacher swag. These pastors justify their luxurious salaries by all types of verbal gymnastics. They merchandise the gospel and market themselves. Some of you, you came here from a church who's, who had a pastor that embezzled money from the congregation. Some of you came from a church where a pastor simply took the job because it paid well. I came from a church where there would be 1,000 cars in the parking lot and only one of them was a brand new Mercedes-Benz pastor's car. He pastored a blue-collar church but lived a white-collar life. He lived above his people. Don't let rich, flaunting preachers keep you from obeying this text. You think they didn't exist in the first century? Wolves existed in every century. The love of money infested pastors' hearts long before America. Don't overreact to pastoral financial abuses in such a way that it causes you to fail to obey the clear commands of Scripture. God deals with wolves among his sheep. Whether the wolves are destroying the flock or whether the wolves are pretending to be the shepherd. You non-Christians, you're going to get a little sneak peek in how God designed for his church to function financially. Here's what I have for you. 
The text broken down in this way. Three movements. Unpacking the realities of pastoring a hard church. That's verses one through three. Establishing the right for financial support. That's verses four through 12a and then 13 and 14. Rejecting the right of financial support. That's verse 12b and 15 through 18. Unpacking the realities of pastoring a hard church. Establishing the right for financial support. Rejecting the right of financial support. You don't have to write all that down now. We're going to take them one at a time. Unpacking the realities of pastoring a hard church. Paul opens this text by blasting them with four successive rapid-fire questions. To each question, he expects the answer yes. Notice verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? This is Paul's self-presentation. The church had cast aspersions on Paul. They undermined his apostolic authority and sought to damage his credibility, doubting his word and dismissing his ministry. He quips, can't you read? It says apostle on my business card. Paul calls himself apostle 19 times. He was an apostle. He saw the risen Christ. He was given apostolic authority, a unique position in the first century church. Anyone who calls themselves an apostle today are false apostles. This office no longer exists. Some charismatics who may have more heat than light claim it still exists, but it doesn't because there are no more eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Now, I want to stop here and anticipate some pushback. I want to answer it now so you're not thinking about it throughout the sermon. You might wonder, Kyle, is this not referring to Apostles, not pastors? Why are you applying apostle truths to pastors? There is a verse in the middle of our text where Paul says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Regular pastors have this claim on you, do not apostles even more. You will see Paul start narrowly with apostles, but then he will broaden as the text builds to include all gospel preachers. Here, Paul seems agitated by the church's constant questioning of his apostleship. And it may be that some churches question Paul's apostolic authority, but Corinth shouldn't be one. Verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Throw me a little respect over here. You are living proof of my apostleship, the seal The seal was a clay or wax stamp that guaranteed the quality of the document. My work among you bunch of hard-hearted people demonstrates my apostleship. He says, why are you always questioning my authority? Why Why do you not follow God's ordained authority in your life? I am not a thorn in the side of the church. I am the doctor who assesses the church. Verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. You see the legal terminology? Defense, examine. Both words come from the Roman law court. Paul's writing as if he is in court being charged, and he gives his defense. It's an impassioned defense. 
He will face head on the accusations that deny the validity of his apostleship. He's prepared for the hostile cross-examination. He's bringing more pieces of supporting evidence. He's not looking to establish his right, but reassert it. Paul feels like he's on trial and they are standing in judgment over him. Which leads to an application. An application for future pastors and current pastors. The health of your church does not determine the health of your soul. The health of your church does not determine the health of your soul. Paul started this church and pastored it for 18 months. He left. Apollos came to pastor it. He's been pastoring, pastoring it for the last three to five years. I think it's safe to say both men pastored in an unhealthy situation. It was a hard church. Paul doesn't beat around the bush on the realities he faced while pastoring this hard church. I read recently how pastors admit to fighting constant depression. How they admit they are in an unhealthy place spiritually. How the wives of these pastors feel their husband is overworked. That the church is killing him. Robbing the family of his time. Can't you quit and get a secular job? I read all that recently, but I don't have to read it to know it's true. I just have to talk to pastor friends. Future pastors and current pastors, some will tell you, you're in an unhealthy situation, so of course you are unhealthy. But it doesn't have to be that way. Paul and Apollos labored in a hard church, had hard conversations, hard situations, yet they never developed a hard heart. They still guarded their soul and remained healthy. When God called you to pastor, he didn't call you to do something easy. But he did call you to do something that he would empower you to do and give you the ability to remain spiritually healthy in it. Unpacking the realities of pastoring a hard church. Now, establishing the right for financial support. You may notice that Paul asks 16 questions in the first 18 verses. He's aggressive in his defense. He's going to piece by piece build an argument for why the church should support him and their current pastors. Verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? As do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Paul's comparing himself to other apostles here. When apostles travel, they have the right to bring along a believing wife. The apostle and the wife have food and lodging cared for by the church. The church picks up the expense. The financial support comes from the church. This was a common practice among first century churches. Paul is referring to something already going on. Most apostles were married. Now this is a big hit to the Roman Catholic teaching on popes and mandatory celibacy. They say Cephas, Peter, was the first pope. But here it tells us he had a wife. The text mentions Jesus' brothers. Mary and Joseph had children together after the Christ was born. These brothers didn't believe on Jesus at first, but now they are missionaries. They are apostles. None of them followed Jesus prior to his resurrection. But seeing the resurrected Christ changed it all. Paul was either single or widowed. And did not choose to take a wife along with him. But he had the right. Just like all these other apostles had the right to be fully supported along with their wives. So does Paul. That's the argument. Verse 6. 
Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? In spite of their apostolic uh, status, these two worked a secular job while doing missionary and pastoral activity. The church did not support them. Now, Paul will, Paul will now give three examples of workers being supported by the fruit of their labors. Verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Let's stop here. Could you imagine the morale of the United States Army if soldiers had to supply their own uniforms, their own guns, their own ammunition, their own sleeping quarters? You serve our country, but we don't, we don't pay you to serve our country. You have to work a civilian job in order to serve us. Housing allowance, yeah, you, you don't get that. They struggle to keep morale up when everything is paid for. Imagine how difficult it would be here. Warriors compensated for their service. This is the argument that is about to develop. If a soldier is paid by the army, a pastor has just as much right to be paid by the church. 7b. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Let's pause. The vine dresser can enjoy the produce of his labor. Whatever the vine produces feeds the one who cares for it. Verse 7c. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Milkmaids can drink from the pail. A dairy farmer doesn't die of dehydration. Now, let me summarize this. The church has its own soldiers. The church has its own dairy farmers. They are called pastors, and they should be enjoying the fruit of their labor. One wonders if perhaps Paul selected these professions because some of the Corinthians themselves were currently, as Paul wrote to them, soldiers, dairy farmers, and vine dressers. Here's the logic. If it's true in these other three realms, it's definitely true in this realm. People have a right to make a living from their work. There is a normal obligation resting upon the churches that Paul wants the Corinthians to recognize also rest upon them. Now, we're going to transition here from three modern examples to one ancient example. Paul's, he brought forth common sense logic. Now he brings forth divine authority established from the scripture. Paul is going to make his argument stronger. He's going to fill in every possible gap. And he begins by asking a dual question. Verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? In other words, I'm not saying all this because I'm irritated. It's in the Old Testament. Paul appeals to the scriptures and specifically Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. Look at verse 9 of our text. For it was written in the law of Moses. Where is that? Deuteronomy 24, 25 4. For it was written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Oxen drug a, a weighted board across the grain while walking around a central post. According to the law of God, oxen were allowed to munch some of the produce while they trudged round and round to separate the grain from the chaff. It would be cruel to put a muzzle on the ox and make him work all day without feeding him. That's animal cruelty and God doesn't want it. He wanted humane treatment of working animals. The farm animal labored and should eat of the labor. After quoting this verse, Paul adds, 
Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Martin Luther quipped, this verse definitely was not written for oxen since they can't read. (laughs) Paul applies this Old Testament text to pastors. Does God love cows more than preachers? No. God who is concerned about oxen is much more concerned for his ministers. We are the oxen of God. Do you care for God's oxen? Don't dine and dash. Don't muzzle the oxen. Don't make God's soldier supply his own ammunition. Don't let the dairy farmer die of dehydration. Don't let the vineyard worker starve. God takes care of the birds of the air, the oxen on the ground, and the preachers behind the pulpit. Now, some historians say this is in the context of people renting an ox for a day and then returning the ox in a weakened state. Verse 10. Does he not certainly speak for us? This is Paul interpreting the Old Testament. Does he not certainly speak for us? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. A worker shares in the fruits of his labor. A farmer can eat the crop he grows. Is this field producing fruit? Let the fruit feed the farmhands. God provides for the preacher's need from the fruits of his labor. Verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? This is the conclusion to the main argument. Material pay for spiritual work. Those who receive the word support those who supply it. Paul says, I sowed spiritual seed among you. Is it too much to reap a material harvest from you? There's spiritual farming taking place in the church. Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Your current pastors have a rightful claim, and I especially do because I planted you. They are paying Apollos, it seems, but maybe not enough, judging from Paul's tone. Paul calls for reasonable pay for his work. He, as an apostle, and the other men as pastors, should be sufficiently cared for, provided for. Everyone thinks a soldier should have his his mortgage paid and his house paid for, His mortgage paid and and his food paid for because he's laboring. Nobody thinks ill of that. Paul carries that over. What if a man starts a church, pastors a church, and the church is growing, it's flourishing, it's doing well? Can he not make a living from it? Verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Paul offers a string of arguments to back up and reinforce the point he is making. Supporting and maintaining the pastors is the job of the church. Those who work in sacred things receive their livelihood from it. Now, I'm not so sure he's referring to God's temple here. Because those sacrifices basically ended when Jesus was sacrificed on the cross as the final lamb. The reality had come, so the road signs were no longer needed. I think this could be talking about pagan temples. 
Paul has been talking about pagan temples. Hear the sting. The pagans take care of their pastors. But you don't take care of your pastors. Verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul cites Jesus to clench the argument. Those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Jesus said so. He appeals to Jesus. The Lord, not mere humans, commanded this. Now, most scholars believe this is referring to Jesus' word in Luke 10 and Matthew 10. The gospel laborer is worthy of his living. In other words, Jesus said, pay for your gospel meals. Paul has given three modern day examples. A soldier, a dairy farmer, and a vine dresser. He did expand on that a little bit and give a regular farmer example too. Then he moves to, from the modern examples to the ancient example, oxen. And then he gives the Jesus command. Scripturally, he, he applied to the Old Testament and the New Testament to teach the church to support their pastors. Now, an application for those who have pastors. Those proclaiming the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul says these are the words of Jesus. Churches should provide a salary for the pastor to allow the pastor to do what God has called him to do. Now there are some brethren and some primitive Baptists who say that pastors shouldn't be paid. I disagree. I think the Bible disagrees. Are you feeding the ox that is treading out the grain? Are you supporting the man who is feeding you spiritually? When you give to this church, that is what you're giving to. You're giving to gospel ministers, to gospel ministry, to gospel work. A pastor's wife shouldn't have to get a job outside of the home when she has small children. The church should care for the pastor's needs and for the pastor's wife. Just like the New Testament churches did with the apostles and their wives. Which Paul inferred was the case with the pastors who were not apostles. Here's the implication from the text. Pay your pastors. You need to provide for those who give the gospel to you. Now, some say, I think all pastors should be bivocational. How do you square that with this text? Now, as a concession, I realize in some third world countries, this may look different. Their full-time support is going to look different than than what it looks like here in the richest society in the history of mankind. And it is interesting that, we, that this is still an issue in the richest society in the history of mankind. Societies change, but hearts don't. God inspired this text to take care of his gospel oxen. Some of you wonder if, pa- if pastors really do anything. They just work on Sundays, right? <laughs> I get that question every year. It's never delivered in a disrespectful way. It's, it's from new converts who are truly curious. We are a growing church with lots of new converts, and they sincerely wonder, what do pastors do? There are 45 hours a week put into every gospel meal that is served from this pulpit. 
That is not including counseling appointments, discipleship meetings, evangelism conversations, building upkeep, volunteer training, volunteer recruiting, volunteer scheduling, whatever online stuff, and finances, and a host of other things. When a church underpays their ministers, they take from them what is their God-given right. One of the ways you respect your pastor is by paying them a decent wage. Matthew Henry comments, it is the people's duty to maintain their minister. Now, another application for those who have pastors. Don't dine and dash. Pay for your gospel meals. Don't dine and dash. Pay for your gospel meals. In every church, there are some people getting fed but not contributing. This is like benefiting from the army, protection, but not paying taxes. Rights we know. Responsibilities not so much. We are in a culture of entitlement. Some of you that are feasting but not giving, spiritually, you are on welfare. You can contribute, but you don't. You just take advantage. You are the people you complain about. <laughs> You are just as entitled spiritually as they are practically. John Chrysostom writes that those who contribute to their teachers receive more than they give. R.C. Sproul said the spiritual benefits we receive from good gospel teaching far outweigh any material benefits we can give. John MacArthur said giving to the Lord's workers is giving to the Lord. And you ask, Kyle, how much am I obligated to give? Well, I can tell you this, in the poorest society we know of in the Bible, God commanded 10%. Then there was another 10%. Then every third year, there was another 10%. That's 33% of their income. Here's what that means. None of us are giving enough, especially considering how wealthy we are in the States. Now, this may spurn some questions in your mind, especially among some of you newer converts have just been here with us for a year or two. For some of you who have not been giving and some of you who have been giving less than you give to coffee, you may wonder, how have you made it? Well, there's been other families in the church that have picked up your slack. They give above and beyond because they know that we have some who dine and dash among us. Even as a result of this sermon, the people who are already giving will give more. <laughs> and those who are not giving will still not give. No, no, that's not going to happen. You'll be convicted by the scriptures. <laughs> when faced with it, you will obey the word. Now, an application for those who are suspicious of pastors. If you're suspicious of pastors, this is the perfect sermon for you to, for you to enter in. You're like, this is exactly what I thought churches were all about. <laughs> Non-Christian, God has not designed for you to support his church or his oxen. There's many non-Christians among us this morning. God has not designed for you to support his church or his oxen. If you are not a Christian... You can give until the cows come home, but it will not make you a Christian. This instruction on giving is for Christians, not you.
You need to repent. That's the instruction for you. You need to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your soul's salvation. Unpacking the realities of pastoring a hard church, establishing the right for financial support, rejecting the right of financial support. Now, if, if you can't retain unless the outline is alliterated, I'll give you an alliterated outline. A defense, a duty, a decision. A defense, Paul defending his apostleship, a duty, churches support their gospel ministers. A decision, I'm not taking the support. Verse 12b. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul chose voluntarily not to make use of this right. I have a right to be paid by the church, but I am not going to exercise this right. I will not accept a salary. Now, FFC, you are thinking, I want some pastors like that. <laughs> Paul did not refuse financial assistance because he and the other apostles and pastors had no legitimate claim to compensation for gospel labor. Rather, he would sometimes surrender this right of support in order to remove any obstacles to the gospel. Why would this be an obstacle to the gospel? Some historical context helps us. Paul desired to separate himself from the traveling philosophers. Corinth was filled with itinerant philosophers who went about and philosophized. And the people gave money to them to sit under their teaching. The world pays their preachers to give them a false gospel. These traveling orators and public speakers would often depend on the support of a wealthy patron. It, it became a patron-client relationship. And the philosopher became beholden to the money bags. Pagan teachers were well paid. Paul said... I don't want it perceived that I spit the word and pass the plate. Paul doesn't want anyone claiming that he is only in it for the cash. He wants the gospel to come to them freely without charge. He refuses to do anything that may hinder the gospel. He doesn't want to do anything that would break up the road preventing someone from coming to Christ. This is why Paul worked a job outside of pastoring which was an embarrassment for him. Manual labor was largely despised in first century Corinth. Exercising his rights to reject payment for gospel ministry and to support himself through manual labor was for Paul an embrace of weakness, a weakness that would later be grounds for boasting. Making tents was a skill, and Paul must have been good at it, he used that secular job to free him from financially depending on the church at Corinth. This is the first of seven uses of the word gospel in verses 12 through 18. The gospel is this. You are alienated from God with no chance of coming into his presence. Your sin has ruined any chance of that. 
God the Father sent his son Jesus Christ to live the life you should have lived, to die the death you deserve to die, and three days later he rose from the dead alive forevermore. There is now a way you can be restored to God through the work of his son. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that's the gospel. That message is so vital to Paul, he is willing to go to extremes not to distract from it. Notice, Paul says the same thing two different times. Notice verse 12b. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Now notice the beginning of verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights. Looking at the literary context is going to help us here. Paul says in chapter 8, Be willing to give up your rights. In chapter 10, Paul says, be willing to give up your rights. Some see chapter 9 as a, as a parenthesis, nothing to do with the argument. It's a rabbit trail. I don't see it. I see chapter 9 as Paul giving up a right. Paul in chapter 9 is illustrating the very principle he laid down in chapter 8. I actually skipped verse 4 in our initial walkthrough. But it says... Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Paul was asking them in chapter 8 to relinquish some rights of eating and drinking. He says, I have those same rights. Now Paul demonstrates how he relinquished a right in the area of money to encourage them to do it in the area of food and drink. This is Paul practicing what he preaches. There are certain rights Paul has chosen to forego. And receiving a salary from the church is one. I don't want to use my right among you. Paul desires to leave his rights unclaimed. And, and his motivation for leaving these rights unclaimed are gospel motivations. While he's entitled to financial support, the culture in Corinth may not understand it, so he did not accept payment for his gospel labors. Verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Now if you're cynical, and some of you are, Paul's not using reverse psychology. Oh, I hope they start funding me now, now that I've talked about how I don't need funding. Paul is not trying to benefit from this sometime in the future. In essence, he said, this is not an underhanded attempt to get money. In fact, I would rather die than take a dollar from you. Paul makes a highly emotional declaration worthy of every minister of the gospel. I would rather die. That last sentence is not a complete sentence in the Greek. There is a break, an interruption. It's, it's like Paul said, I would rather die than, and then he chopped the sentence off before a loud exclamation, no one will deprive me of this boast. This is not sinful boasting, but a right sense of joy. Boasting in the weakness of working while preaching to not hinder the gospel. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, 
That gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul possesses an unquenchable desire to preach the gospel. Like a fire within the bones. It's a driving force within him. He shouldn't be praised for preaching the gospel. Don't clap for him for preaching the gospel. He's under divine compulsion. It's an unavoidable act. He was drafted into this. He was not given any choice in the matter. On the Damascus Road, Jesus didn't meet Paul and say, Hey, you want to be a preacher? Think about it. Let's talk about the pros and cons. No, Jesus came down on the Damascus Road and punched him in the mouth and said, You will spit my gospel around the world. He was conscripted into this position. It wasn't voluntary. Conscripted soldiers don't boast. Paul said, I don't carry this out on my own initiative. I've been commissioned. I've been tasked. Paul is fulfilling an obligation. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He goes further in this, comparing the work of a free person versus the work of a slave. Verse 17. For if I do this of my own will... I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. In other words, Paul is a slave of Christ and is therefore entitled to no reward for his labor. He must serve because he is a slave. He did not choose to be a preacher. Rather, this vocation was imposed on him from without. Paul recognized the gospel as something solemnly entrusted to him. Verse 18. What then is my reward? What great reward motivated Paul to forfeit his rights? He expects to be paid later. Eternal rewards motivated Paul. He does indeed have a reward just not a monetary one. Look at the end of verse 18. That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. What kind of news leads a man to work for free? There is a word play here. His pay is presenting the gospel without pay. Preaching Without charge. Paul, I want you to come and preach a conference. Preach at the church on Sunday morning and in the conference Monday night and Tuesday night. How much do you charge? Paul says, free. Free? Yes, I preach the gospel without demanding or expecting payment. I preach the gospel for free. But you must understand, I'm enslaved to preach this gospel. His pay was to serve without pay. The gospel gave him rights, but he chose not to use them. Now, I have three or four, five applications. I don't know how many. I think I have three. An application for future pastors. An application for future pastors. Pastoring is not something you decide to do. It's something you're enslaved to do. Pastoring is not something you decide to do. It's something you are enslaved to do. It's something you will die if you don't do. Reform thinkers have long spoken of the internal call and the external call. 
particularly in the case of pastors. It's both a calling and a compulsion, an insatiable desire. There will be hard days and hard churches, but God gives you a hard spine to stick it out. Like Paul, you are going to, to do it whether the money is there or not. You will likely be underpaid. You will be able to make more money in the secular world. You will have people telling you to leave. But God is telling you to stay. There will be immature, ungrateful, selfish people. It's called ministry. Be like Paul. And don't run from the hard. Counseling agencies and pastoral groups are too quick to give men an exit from the pastoral role. Indeed, some should exit because they never should have been in it in the first place. An application for current pastors. You are not a hired preacher. You do not preach because you are hired. You do not preach because you are hired. No one pays a pastor to preach the gospel. They free a pastor from financial responsibility so he can preach. They free him of financial distractions so he can focus on prayer and preaching. You preach a free gospel that sets people free. And you preach it freely. Part of why Paul refused a salary was because in this day, these traveling philosophers, it, it would create a patron-client relationship. The, 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 the preacher was beholden to Mr. Moneybags. Pastor, don't ever be beholden to the biggest givers in the church. There is never a patron-client relationship in ministry. Don't ever let them threaten you by pulling their money away. I've told more than one where they can take their money. Their money comes and goes with their demands being met. I will die before I make a decision based on your giving. Don't ever sell out for a big giver. Because Christ paid for something they could never pay for. Sins forgiven. We don't sell out Christ for big givers. An application for everyone. A junk drawer full of helpful implications. <laughs> I just couldn't put it under a heading. A junk drawer full of helpful implications. I heard a story about a preacher in Kentucky who rode a very fine, healthy horse. But the preacher himself was a very skinny fellow. One day, one man in his church asked him the question, which had been a matter of discussion, how is it, preacher, that your horse is so fine and healthy looking and you're such a skinny fellow? The preacher answered, well, I will tell you. I feed my horse and it is you that feeds me. <laughs> Scripture itself gives ample precedent for the congregation to support their pastors, to pay their pastors, or better, to free their pastors of financial needs. Now, this could be rooted in the Old Testament. Eleven tribes were taxed and gave offerings to take care of the priestly tribe. This text teaches that the pastor is entitled to a salary. Now, for our transient crowd, 
you will typically pick up on this about a month or two before you move away. Another church benefits from our good teaching on this. And that's fine with us. Let's pick up some other random things in this drawer. Oh, look, there's a note. There's a note and it says, I love my pastor so much, I'm going to miss church on Sunday so I can work and give that money to pay for these gospel meals. <laughs> the Lord doesn't need your money. He can send a Paul that does it without your money. Get in the corporate worship service. Charles Spurgeon attests, no amount of salary can make up to you the disadvantage of being kept from the assembly of the saints. No amount of salary can make up to your soul the loss sustained by missing the word. There's something for children in this drawer. Start giving now. Children, are you being fed? Start giving now. Hey, future pastor, there's something in here for you. You want to be in the ministry, but you don't give to the ministry? You need to drop everything and go back to the basics. It's one of the first questions I ask of all people wanting to go into the ministry. Your giving should be exemplary if you desire the office of a pastor. Now, there's something in this drawer for the kind church member. Some of you, you are so generous. You are so kind. You are so loving. And you're going to start slipping the pastor's $20 bills and $100 bills to show them you love them. All of our pastors know if they receive cash from anyone, they have to put it in the offering box at the church. We don't accept money. You say, well, Kyle, in the first century, they gave money and food directly to the pastor. Maybe. We don't do that here. My point in this is to teach you that you give to God's church and the pastors are supported through the general budget not outside of it. God commands those who are ministered to to support the ministers. But the ministers don't have to accept it. This example of rejecting compensation for gospel ministry is not required of all pastors. Paul is free to give up his own rights, but not free to give up the rights of other pastors. Should pastors today assert or release their right to be supported? They should do whichever will serve the gospel and the church better. Certain mission fields, I could see this being a very appropriate thing. Now, I'm about to preach the gaps here. I just want to warn you. I'm about to preach the gaps, but I think Paul wants the churches to follow his teaching not his example. I think Paul wants the churches to follow his teaching, not his example. And I say that because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8, it seems to imply that Paul regretted not letting them minister to him financially. He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Paul tells all churches to support their pastors and tells Timothy to accept the support. Well, there's a lot in this text. 
We leave full and carrying home a little doggy bag. Father, another Lord's Day in which you fed us from your word. We've been helped by this text. We understand your church better. We value your gospel more highly. We see the action steps we need to take. Help us to be obedient. We leave full. Amen.